This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. This message comes from NPR sponsor Comcast. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed internet. But the barriers to getting connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Hi, this is Kelly Burton in Santa Barbara, California, where my husband and I just successfully dropped off all three of our kids at three different schools on time and with breakfast. This podcast was recorded at 12.25 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, January 12th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, but we will still be celebrating all the parents who made it through the challenging but wonderful daily ritual of morning school drop-off. Okay, here's the show. It just never gets easier. Kids, man. You know, my daughter's figured out that I can cook. So every morning now, or the night before, she's asking me for very specific things to make her in the morning. I want avocado toast with egg today. Okay. Well, you know, a girl knows what she wants. She does, and it's good. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Don Gagne, national political correspondent. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. Monday night at 7 p.m. Central Time, Iowa Republicans will gather in school gyms and libraries and maybe even people's houses to caucus. It is happening. And we hope that this podcast will be your guide. Don, you are joining us from Iowa. What does it look like there right now? This is where I exhale deeply (laughs) before I start describing the weather. I'm looking out my hotel room window, and visibility is uh, practically at zero. And the temperature is in the single digits. It is snowing. And this is uh, the calm part of the weather system. Wait, you're telling me this is the good part? On caucus Day, which is Monday, the high is expected to be two degrees below zero. The low that day, which will hit sometime around uh, the, the, the time the caucus door is open, is expected to be in the range of 19 degrees below zero. Oh, and uh, it's going to be windy, so some projections are for that to be like 50 below zero wind chill. Don, do you uh, expect that the weather will affect the turnout? I, I don't see how it doesn't affect the turnout. The big question is how much. So record Republican caucus turnout in Iowa took place in 2016. Uh, Ted Cruz won that caucus over Donald Trump, but it was pretty close. And they had like 186,000 people. And there was initially some talk that maybe Republicans would exceed that number this year. Except I'm talking to people who are involved in the ground games of these campaigns. And they're saying now, perhaps optimistically, it could be as low as 150,000 or lower than that. I don't know. That might feel like a crazy optimistic number as well. The real question with this is whose voters actually show up? 
Yeah, that's a huge question. And, you know, the thing about the Iowa caucuses is that it has a pretty low participation rate to begin with. I mean, even the highest of Iowa turnouts, if you were to look at what that means for registration today, it's only about one in four registered Republicans who would participate. And it's usually more like one in five, one in six. So that's pretty low. And when you have weather like this and you have candidates who are dependent on some people who may not have caucused before, it really throws a huge wild card into things. And I'm specifically thinking of the Trump campaign because they've really appealed to first-time caucus goers. They did that in 2016. They won over those first-time caucus goers who made up almost half of the caucuses in uh, 2016. And by the way, almost half of Iowa caucus goers say that they decide within the last week on who they actually want to be their nominee. The Trump team has a much better field operation this time, but they're going to need snowplows and ATVs to get people to the polls. Domenico, let's just step back. Remind us, what is an Iowa caucus? Well, a caucus is unlike what you normally think of when you go vote. You know, it's not going to a voting machine and putting in something on an electronic voting machine. Then it's tallied. You walk in, walk out. No, it's not quite like that. It takes a little bit more time. It's a meeting. It's run by the state party. And, you know, these are happening in precinct caucuses. So in little places all over the state, 1,657 different locations, actually, this time around. And that's going to mean that people are there for a while because they're going to have a process. You're going to hear from representatives of the campaigns who make kind of these one minute speeches. And that's why it's really important for these campaigns to have representatives, precinct captains, as they call them, at each of these places to try to sway people. Now, for people who think they know what the Iowa caucuses are like because they think they've seen some videos or whatever about how the Democrats do things, it's very, very different from that. The good news is for this Monday, we don't have to understand that process. No, this is just they people just basically put in folded sheets of paper um, and submit a, a secret straw poll ballot that then gets added up and tallied to a central location to tell us who won the thing. Don, you were able to get out before the storm hit and got all over Iowa. You saw three different candidates. What did you learn? I saw Nikki Haley in the morning in the suburbs of Des Moines. She had uh, 120 people or so at her event. And... People there are feeling good because she has actually been moving up into the polls. If you look at the polling averages, she's in second place over DeSantis. Barely in second place, but that would be a good finish for her. Then uh, in the afternoon, I, I went to a Trump event. It was not the former president. It was Donald Trump Jr. Again, at this kind of classic place for political gatherings, the Machine Shed Restaurant ah, in yeah. a town called Urbandale. He was talking, uh, kind of, you know, riffing off the cuff, but he was talking uh, about the weather a lot and telling people, you have to show up. We're really going to make a big statement here in Iowa. Then in the evening, I saw, again, crowd of a little more than 100 uh, turnout for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That was an event where he took questions and he really talked about people not believing the polls. He has slipped into third place in Iowa, which would be disastrous for him. And you could kind of sense that urgency last night. Don, you have covered several caucuses. Paint a picture of what they're like for us. There is always a certain buzz on caucus day because these are the very first official votes 
being cast during the election primary caucus season. So there's good energy and Iowans who have been enduring television ads for a year and candidate visits for a year. There is a sense that it's all coming to an end. Now, the other reality is given that Iowa is no longer a battleground state, uh, the, the show will leave town, go off to New Hampshire and the subsequent states, and people won't start paying any attention to Iowa again for about three years. This year, there are even questions as to whether or not the circus will come back to town at all. in three years at all. Domenico, we've said this before. We will say it again. Iowa, in a lot of ways, because it goes first, it's all about expectations. And we are now in the phase of the campaign where people are trying to temper expectations or, or play the expectations game. But what could various results scenarios mean for these candidates, especially based on the expectations that have already been set? Yeah, I think there's two things to watch. One, it's the margins for Trump. How much does he win by uh, if he wins? Um, and what's the order of finish? You know, I think when Don was mentioning that Nikki Haley has sort of crept up and maybe a little ahead in the poll averages of Ron DeSantis, which would be a big, big deal if that were the case, because if Haley were to finish ahead of DeSantis in the place where DeSantis has gone all in, you know, it's hard for DeSantis to make a case that his campaign should continue. For Haley, it's really cake. If she's able to finish ahead of DeSantis, then she's got some momentum going into New Hampshire. Even if she finishes a close third, she's going to have met the expectations that um, a lot of people thought she would. And Trump, you know, this weather, who knows what it's going to mean, but he's been ahead by 20, 30 points in Iowa for the entirety of this campaign. If he finishes, you know, with a margin that's much smaller than that, you know, there's going to be some questions about his candidacy and a much more important fight that then lines up between him and likely Haley in New Hampshire. All right. Well, we will stop there and take a break. And when we come back, a roundup of all the other campaign news. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. There's a new way to support this show and public media. Please consider signing up for the NPR Plus podcast bundle. NPR Plus listeners get to unlock sponsor-free shows and bonus episodes. You can find out more at plus.npr.org. And thanks. And we're back. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has ended his presidential campaign. 
really the only candidate who was left in the race willing to run directly against Donald Trump. This was part of the speech where he said he was suspending his campaign. If Donald Trump becomes the nominee of this party, the moment that it happened was when Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Mike Pence and Doug Burgum and Vivek Ramaswamy stood on that stage in Milwaukee in August. And when we were asked, would you support someone who is a convicted felon to be president of the United States, they raised their hands. You know, Chris Christie never really ran to be the nominee. And I think that what he's saying there um, really reflects that. You know, he, he, he was really there to pressure candidates and other Republican leaders and to try to make this case to Republican voters to abandon Trump, whether or not he thought he was actually going to be the nominee. I, I, you know, in talking to people around his campaign, they said that he understood very well what the odds were in front of him. And that in campaign speak is he doesn't expect to be the nominee. The, right. the idea here was, again, to try to move on from Trump. And, you know, that's why his campaign has really become, you know, hard to look back on it and think is anything but a failure because and it has to confound him. It has to frustrate him. So he made the arguments very clearly and concisely. Democrats liked what he was saying, but Republicans didn't pick up on it. And and I think what he's arguing there is he was the only one saying it. And because he was the only one saying it, he was isolated. Yeah. And that's another thing that Republican strategists have said to me since the beginning of the Trump presidency and candidacy, frankly, is that without a unified uh, voice from Republican leaders talking out against Trump's conduct, then they were ceding the ground to him to basically make the case to Republican voters. And, you know, by the time now he's running again, I, they don't have much chance of rolling any of that back. Don, Christie never actually campaigned in Iowa that I know of. He um, he was he was betting it all on New Hampshire. Now he's dropped out before New Hampshire. You know, he had something like 12 points ish uh, in in various polls in in the Granite State. Do you have any sense of what his departure from the scene means for the the race? I was talking to voters at three different events within 24 hours of him dropping out and nobody brought it up. They just have not been thinking about Chris Christie here in Iowa. He hasn't been campaigning here, so that's no surprise. But it's also like there are there are no Christie votes here to now be divided amongst other candidates. There's no there's no sense that these candidates here who are campaigning here are ready to capitalize on this. Yeah. And, and his campaign and the Super PAC supporting him haven't spent a nickel in Iowa. I mean, they focused um, exclusively in New Hampshire. Well, and Domenico, I think it is worth noting he has not endorsed someone. Nope. He he did not say, all right, guys, you're you're coming to my events. Now go vote for Nikki Haley, which I think is what Nikki Haley would have liked. Yeah. And look, I think that the reality here is that if the whole point of his candidacy was to say move on from Trump and the way that people speak about him is is what he's really after to saying that you're going to pardon Trump or making excuses for his conduct or then pointing toward the Justice Department. That's really muddying the waters. It's playing into Trump's hands. And it's not what Christie wants. All right. Let's talk about Donald Trump a little more. He attended a town hall event uh, that uh, was aired on Fox News this past week. And 
he made some comments on abortion that are getting a lot of attention. For 54 years, they were trying to get Roe v. Wade terminated, and I did it, and I'm proud to have done it. They wanted to get it back, right? You wouldn't be have that. There would be no question. Nobody else was going to get that done but that, me. Yeah. And we did it, and we did something that was a miracle. I mean, I did it, and I'm proud to have done it. That no matter what Trump says in trying to appeal to the middle and saying that six week bans go too far, which is a thing that we've heard him say, um, this is what Democrats are going to clip and use over and over and over again, spending millions of dollars to remind voters that Trump is the reason that Roe v. Wade was uh, dismantled, why the Dobbs decision happened in the first place, because he was able to appoint three justices to the Supreme Court. And that is, if there's anything that is a lasting legacy for Donald Trump, it is that. Domenico, you've been watching what Iowa television viewers have been seeing way too much of, which is ads. Um, So they are spending a lot of money. They have spent a lot of money on campaign ads. Right now, everybody is trapped in their house. All they can do is watch TV. What are they seeing? I mean, you know, a lot of people are waking up and sort of starting to focus on Iowa and New Hampshire. Well, these candidates have been doing that since before even Trump got into the race, which was in 2022. So that's how long we've been covering uh, Iowa and New Hampshire and how they've been spending this kind of money. By state, by the way, Iowa has seen $123 million in ads spent. So by far the most of any state. New Hampshire, $73 million. And poor South Carolina and Nevada, $9 million in South Carolina. That's sure to go up really quickly soon. And only about a million dollars in Nevada. They're like the two first forgotten states when normally the top four usually get a whole lot more attention. But this time around, because Haley and DeSantis have really had to stake all of their candidacies in one of these two places or both, they've really focused on Iowa for DeSantis and Haley for New Hampshire. But what's really surprising here is that Haley and the super PAC that's supporting her have outspent DeSantis by a lot, actually. And it's only something that's come up in the last two weeks. DeSantis's team had been really dominating the airwaves. He has three super PACs that are supporting his candidacy. But with all the infighting, all the turmoil, his poll numbers starting to go down, people leaving those places and Haley going the other direction. She raised $24 million in the last quarter of 2023. And they're using that money and putting it to to a lot of TV ads. Right. I just want to spell out what you showed me on your computer before we walked (laughs) into the studio. Nikki Haley and her Allied Super PAC have actually spent more money on ads in Iowa than Ron DeSantis, who is betting it all on Iowa. That's right. $37 million that Haley and the team uh, supporting her are spending there. $35 million for DeSantis uh, and the three super PACs that are supporting him. You know, the other part of this that's really important is the role of super PACs, because usually super PACs and campaigns spend roughly about the same amount of money. You know, the campaigns might spend like 47% or so, and the super PACs spend like 53 or whatever it is. This time around, listen to these numbers. 70% of all of the ads that have aired for Trump have come from super PACs. 75% for Haley, 92% for DeSantis. They're really outsourcing a lot of what you know, is happening on these airwaves, giving the airwaves over to these super PACs for good reason in some respects, because they have no contribution limits. They can raise money from the wealthiest Americans, from corporations, from labor unions. Um, A lot of times we don't even know which ones wound up supporting them in many cases. Now, the difficulty with that is that the candidates and the super PACs are not allowed to coordinate with each other at all. And that makes it a little difficult to really control the message. 
All right, let's take a break. And when we get back, can't let it go. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from Wondery. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire. But when their fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift. Blame It on the Fame dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Follow on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's get into it. It is time for Can't Let It Go, the part of the pod where we talk about the things that we just can't stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Domenico, kick us off. What can't you let go of? Well... What I can't let go of is the story about this Alaska Airlines plane um, that uh, midair had uh, this very scary moment where a door got blown off. And, you know, a lot of people with for good reason, obviously, were focused on what went wrong and whether or not it could affect any other planes. Um, but I was kind of obsessed with something else that happened, which was this phone that got found from after falling 16,000 feet. It was still intact and it still worked. I was like, how could this even be possible? Yeah, uh, it is crazy. It just got like sucked out. Yeah. And then survived. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I, I guess that's, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I dropped this thing from like five feet and seems to like not do so great anymore. But, you know, I guess it should be from 16,000. I think the credit goes to physics. Oh, was it a cushion? At least or? according to a story that I read. Um, well, it fell on grass. If it had fallen on asphalt, game over oh. for the iPhone. But it fell on grass. That's why when I drop it and from 10 it, feet and it... Yes, you know. or 3 feet. And additionally, it uh, floated down. You know, it wasn't just like straight down cutting through it's the wind air. Resistance. There was wind resistance. Oh. Yep. Okay. The more you know. I guess I'll buy that. Uh, okay, Tam, let's go to you. Uh, what can't you let go of this week? I walked into the office, I looked at the TV, and there was something crazy happening in a congressional hearing, and I had to turn on the volume. Hunter Biden, the president's son, who has been indicted a couple of times and uh, has been in an ongoing battle with the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees who want him to testify in private uh, in a deposition as part of their potential impeachment of President Biden. The committees were holding a hearing. The oversight was holding a hearing to move forward in the process of finding him in contempt of Congress for refusing to testify in a closed-door deposition. And so what did Hunter Biden do? He showed up in the (laughs) hearing room, just sat there in the hearing room as they were planning to do the where's Hunter, he's afraid to testify. He sat right there in the room as if to say, I'm here, but I will only testify in public. And let's just say it was bonkers. Uh, This is Congresswoman Nancy Mace. You are the epitome of white privilege coming into the oversight committee, spitting in our face, ignoring 
a congressional subpoena to be deposed. What are you afraid of? It was like some WWE style stuff. It honestly was pretty much a masterstroke in public relations. He's got a very good attorney, Hunter Biden, and he just doesn't trust that Republicans behind closed doors are going to, you know, not selectively edit what he has to say. It really was a stunt. If if the public thinks that Congress is just like a bunch of people shouting at each other who can't get along and then they saw that hearing, they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's the Congress I expect to see. It was... (laughs) All your worst impressions of Congress, all on display in one committee room. Don, what can't you let go of? (laughs) Uh, If I may, I think we need a moment of serenity here (laughs) after all of that. So at the Des Moines Art Center, that's their art museum. Uh, It's in a neighborhood in, in, in the middle of town. They have a painting by Edward Hopper that I have gone to visit many, many times over the years I've been coming here. It's called Automat, and it features a lone woman seated in one of those automated uh, diners that that New York City and Philadelphia once had, the Automat. She's wearing a yellow hat, a green coat, Uh, She's cradling a cup of coffee. There's a radiator off to the side. And behind her is this blank window with the lights from the ceiling reflected in it in a row. And it is such a gorgeous painting. Edward Hopper, obviously one of the great American artists. And people know his Nighthawks painting, which is on display in Chicago. But Automat rivals Nighthawks. It is a stunning work, and it's hanging in the Des Moines Art Center. And I go see it every time I come, and I just have a moment of calm listening to it. Don, let me just tell you what I love about you. You go to museums in every town, every city. And, you know, I was I was going to Detroit on a reporting trip, and I was like, hey, Don, uh, what should I do? Where should I go? And you were like, you should go to the art museum and see the Diego Rivera murals. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope you did. I did. And it was amazing. (laughs) And you always find a way to take that breath. It's, um, you know, and it's part of my philosophy of reporting. I'm traveling the country. I'm talking to voters everywhere. Every town you go to has its treasures. And I think it's important to find them and know what they are. But before we go, if you want to hear more about the Iowa caucuses, specifically what life is like on the campaign trail, check out our upcoming bonus episode. I have a fun chat with Danielle Kurtzleben, who knows all about dealing with cold on caucus night. Uh, So if you want to hear that bonus episode, it will be out in the feed this weekend for NPR Politics Plus supporters. You can sign up at plus.npr.org slash politics. And as a reminder, our daily episodes are and will always remain free. On Monday, we will be in your feed much later than usual with fresh news from the Iowa caucuses. Our executive producer is Mathani Maturi. Our editor is Erica Morrison. Our producers are Jung-Yoon Han, Casey Morell, and Kelly Wessinger. Special thanks to Krishna Dev Kalamar and Megan Pratz. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Don Gagne, national political correspondent. 
And I'm Domenica Montanaro, Senior Political Editor and Correspondent. And thanks, as always, for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. Each week, hosts Lizanne Saunders, Schwab's chief investment strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's chief fixed income strategist, along with their guests, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around stocks, fixed income, the economy, and more. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. In a stressful election year, we know that a good show, movie, or book can feel like a sacred thing. At Pop Culture Happy Hour, we believe pop culture can be good for you. So we're here four days a week to bring you a book, movie, or show recommendation to put you in high spirits. For a dose of old-fashioned pop culture therapy, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast only from NPR.